Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Perry Carpenter, one of the hosts of the Digital Folklore Podcast. If you've been following us for a while, you know that we're between seasons right now, getting season two all lined out and ready to launch on September 4th. And to be honest, we're getting really excited about it. But while we're all waiting for that, how about another Digital Folklore Unplugged episode? These unplugged episodes are all about stripping away the fancy production elements so that we can give you access to raw or only slightly edited interviews with our folklore experts. On this episode of Digital Folklore Unplugged, my co-host Mason and I had the pleasure of speaking with one of our all-time podcast idols, Chelsea Weber-Smith. I'm Chelsea Weber-Smith. Chelsea is the creator and host of the American Hysteria podcast, a show that probes the depths of our collective anxieties, our shared stories, our cultural myths and legends, and even those mass panics that occasionally sweep through the nation. To say that American Hysteria is a podcast is actually doing it a disservice. It is a journey into the heart of American culture, into the intricacies of our shared psyche. Every episode pushes us to question and reconsider the narratives that we have been fed, the myths that we have been told, and the truths we think we hold dear. Okay, let's get unplugged. I'm Chelsea Weber-Smith, and I host a podcast called American Hysteria, and we look at urban legends, moral panics, and conspiracy theories through a cultural lens and uh, try to trace a through line through our American history. Amazing. So I want to know a little bit about your background. What brings you to this topic and what was the story behind the show? A lot of different factors sort of pulled me into a curiosity about what I consider sort of metaphors in American history, because urban legends, conspiracy theories too, all these things are expressing something that is otherwise sort of inexpressible. And my background is actually in poetry. I have a master's degree in poetry. And so in in, in some ways, it's a logical jump, even though it doesn't seem like it to kind of start to look at these metaphors in our culture that illuminate something about our shared psychology and journey through history and, of course, can tell us a lot about what's happening right now as well. And the other way I come into this is I grew up with a little bit of a a conspiracy theorist background um, from my dad and then from my own conspiracy theory background, uh, more around the... uh, you know, 2000s, uh, which was a different a different scene. But uh, part of the show is me coming out of kind of my own fantastical beliefs and investigating them uh, in a different way. Nice. So I don't know that I've dug into those bits of your show. Have you talked about wh- which theories that you adhered to back in the day? 
Yeah, if you listen to like our Illuminati episode or our end of the world episode, I even interview my dad um, in our end of the world episode and we kind of talk about his 2012 because it was a lot of 2012 oh, stuff, okay. if you remember that. Is that the Mayan calendar? The Mayan calendar yeah. ending, end of the world, age of Aquarius, you know, new age, new age stuff. So I bet that was interviewing your dad and talking through, is that pretty cathartic? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of stuff. It's probably not like it's probably not great for this show to to go into it. But, uh, you know, I think you'll get it when you listen to it. Yeah, it was okay. it was a lot of cuts, a lot of uh, trying to put something together there. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think it was more interesting maybe than than cathartic. OK, OK. Yeah. I'm interested that you came to it with a with a poetry background. And like you said, it is kind of a logical step because poetry is sort of using language to describe bigger ideas and bigger emotions and elements of humanity indirectly. So it, is that sort of right? And that's like how that is a good lens to look at all the subjects you're talking about now? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's a lot about storytelling because the poetry I like has elements of storytelling in it as well. And, you know, I mean, it's an ancient practice to to describe you know, fables and and different things that are the backbones of different cultures. So when you're doing episode planning or when you're looking back at your past episodes, what do you think the core ingredients are for like these episodes that really stand out in your memory of uh, as being great episodes from your past? I mean, I think I always love to uncover a forgotten story in American Mm. history or something that is kind of obscure that that had a big impact on culture because even though we remember these big cultural touchstones you can go back and trace any history and find these stories that were enormous at the time and just for whatever reason didn't stick in our memory our collective memory yeah. so i i love to to discover those stories and then i also love when we can uncover something interesting about human psychology or biology that illuminates why that particular maybe moral panic or um, conspiracy theory or urban legend are coming to fruition in a meaningful way. As you're thinking about where you want to go with the show and you're doing your planning, how do you figure out what you're going to talk about? Because it seems like you, you have seasons that cover some general themes. You do some very, very deep research in pulling everything together. I was super impressed about the story you're able to tell in an episode and all these threads that you pull together. But how would you describe your, your workflow? How does everything come together? What do you use to accomplish it? Well, the best part of making the show for me is the research process because it's kind of a treasure hunt and it's fun. And, you know, you're you're finding something in one book and it takes you to another book, which takes you to a book written in the 1800s, which takes you to a quote that you're shocked by that is <laughs> a huge descriptor of, a t- you know, a time period. And we usually kind of go chronologically. You know, we start with what was happening in, in the earliest parts of colonized America. And um, sometimes we go before that as well. But generally, you know, we'll talk about the Puritans and we'll see what the heck they were up to in terms of the context of whatever we're talking about. And then we just I just kind of go through time and try to understand each topic through the lens of the major things that are happening in history. And so in a way, we're kind of telling the same story again and again, just from all these different angles that hopefully paint a more complete 
picture of our history in general beyond just our topics, just to learn history in a way that's entertaining because history is so fun and it's taught in such a boring way. Not always, of course, but in, in a lot of ways. So I think the the research process just is it's just a giant load of information. And then it's kind of like, I guess it's like a sculpture. You have a giant mm-hmm. stone and you just whittle it away and and slowly it kind of reveals itself. It's it's almost a process I don't fully control. And of course, I have uh, great research assistants. Uh, my brother, Riley Smith, and then my partner, Miranda Zickler, are both a uh, huge part of the research and kind of structuring of the show. Is it just a lot of of chasing rabbit holes and being surprised and finding more rabbit holes in those surprises? That's a great way to put it. That's exactly what it's like. You just never know what you're going to get. And uh, it's really exciting in that way. And it never gets boring. And it's often things that I mean, it's always things that challenge my preconceptions about history and the stories that are told to us from any angle um, are are so simplified that it takes away from the chaos of history, as chaotic as it is right now, and all the forces that come together to to create these important cultural and historical moments that we just forget and we don't we don't give enough credence um, to those complications. And I I actually really enjoy finding them even when it's challenging to my personal beliefs. <laughs> That is the really weird, interesting thing that has come out to me time and time again listening to your episodes is that there's always something a little bit shocking that challenges the way that you remember something. You know, one of the ones that I listened to getting ready for this was, um, and I avoided it early on because I was like, I don't know why I'd want to listen to that. And then I finally listened to it was your one on snuff films. It's a fun one. Because, you know, you just see that in a title. You're like, "Ah, I don't know that that's uh, something I want to listen to right now. But it was fascinating to realize that there's not really any evidence of them actually existing and that it was kind of started as an offhanded comment in a book that was then picked up on and amplified. And then the way that we kind of circle in on things and add more evidence ourselves just by talking about fragments of evidence that existed before. The thing that it made me wonder is because in some ways you can go down like lots of little, like Mason said, lots of little rabbit holes discovering these new things and being challenged. Does it give you a, a sense of empathy? I mean, you look at the some of the horrible things that have happened over the past few years with people who have gone down rabbit holes the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, does it give you a sense of understanding or empathy for those kind of people or do you see it differently somehow? Oh, no, I am filled with complicated amounts of empathy from this show. I think that the most important thing that I've learned and that I hope to give out into the world is that we should try to punch up um, as much as we can because the people who are, I would say, suffering through an affliction of propagandic belief are people who often are hurting and suffering and looking for meaning in a culture that's this fragmented and um, stoked by media outrage that makes a bunch of money for, you know, people who genuinely don't really care about right. what's what we think or do as long as it gives um, more money in the attention economy. So I guess I don't see a lot of value in punching it at those people when I see it as a lot of manipulation 
from powers that be. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but there are powers that be. <laughs> and um, I, something that we <laughs> came to during uh, making the Westboro Baptist Church episode, I'm not sure if you listened to that, but you might remember them. I listened to part of it, yeah. That's the next one I'm going to listen to. Yeah. I'll talk about complicated empathy. Um, but we came to this idea that, and there's a, a term that says depiction is not endorsement so like in a movie that might be considered problematic because something bad happens isn't doesn't it doesn't mean if you depict something in a film that you somehow believe that to be right and i guess what we think at american hysteria is that empathy is not endorsement so i can have empathy for someone without endorsing their beliefs or hopefully doing anything to allow those beliefs to continue to proliferate but I also, through all of my studying of psychology, know that the only way you get places with someone is through some kind of empathetic interaction. And like, I'm not saying I like that, but I mean, (laughs) show me someone who's been yelled into changing their opinion or shamed. You know, I mean, that's not true. It happens. But um, yeah, I guess it just I've found that the people I'm really angry at are the people that have power. Yeah. And I don't really want to make any more enemies. That's how I feel. What's the uh, what's the expression like the banality of evil? Like the the yeah. people who it's really just we're making money. Yeah. Yeah. And that's again, that that's a, another big thing we found is just that exact phrase. I am curious though of like how the show from launch to where it is now, like how that journey has been as a whole and like how you assembled a team or if you've assembled a team like what what's going on behind the curtain of american hysteria like how has that journey been in 60 seconds no pressure (laughs) ready set go i think i could do it in 60 seconds a lot of it just happens in a closet um (laughs) uh yeah we started with a company um that eventually we split from and it became um an independent show and it's been an independent show since then and we partner with ad agencies as i mentioned but it started out with just really just me and then the person who was supervising me working on that together and you know a couple of my friends doing voice acting uh like will rogers who's still our voice actor and we were working on some other podcast stuff there so i was learning we actually worked on um, a podcast with jenny slate called Earthbreak, and um yeah we just were a little ragtag production team there and then um so i learned a lot working for a company um and doing kind of a variety marketing, PR, all that kind of just whatever they they threw at me, I, I did. But after that, uh, when we became independent, well, my brother came on um, and he's a, a brilliant little, I don't, I was going to say a brilliant little guy, but he's in his 20s. He's, he's, <laughs> he's a brilliant um, guy who's great at research. And I just knew I wanted to work with him um, because we've always kind of worked together on, on artistic creative projects. And then um, I met my partner part partway through making American Hysteria um, like about three years ago. And then she joined the team. And then we've had our same producer, um, Rod, from Clear Camo Studios this whole time. And he's been doing sound for us. And we were just kind of magically placed together by the company all those years ago. And uh, yeah, he's still around and we're, we're still nice. all together working on this and 
dragging, dragging through here, just trying to, to make it as an indie podcast. Yeah. Is this everybody's full-time gig for the most part? No, it's my full-time gig. And then it's, they all do other stuff. My partner's a musician and she's in several bands, including a Fleetwood Mac tribute band recently. So that's been really fun. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, cool. <laughs> but yeah, my, my brother also does other kinds of work too. And then I also do other types of work, but this is the main thing I do. Is it your partner playing the music on uh, Suburbs, the song under the Cowboy Tears tab on your site? Or sorry, Country Boy Tears, uh, the song Suburbs. Oh, no, that's me. Is that you playing too? Yeah. Yeah. And then like people in my in my band. Yeah, that's that's my <laughs> secret music. I don't do a lot of music stuff in in the public eye anymore. But yeah, I used to do a lot of like folk punk. I thought it sounded really cool. That's so cool. Well, I'm glad. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm learning to sing better. My partner is an amazing, amazing vocalist, so she she teaches me to sing better. You said your your secret music. I cannot resist a tab on the top of a website that says Country Boy Tears. You have to know what that is, right? <laughs> I know. You got to click it. I know. What am I even saying? <laughs> I do want to record an album soon, though. I'm going to do it with my brother. Um, I'm curious. You have a producer, so you just have to... You don't have to do the post-prod side. You just do the the research, the editing, the presentation, and then ship the parts off to Rod? Basically, yeah. I do what I call the master track. That's probably not the right thing to call it, but it's it's all the narration, which I edit into its final form. So it's not, he doesn't have to go through and, and cut up my mess ups and everything. So I send him a final narration track as well as a final track with all of the clips. So then he's mixing it, adding music. But the basic structure comes from me and my brother and Miranda. Yeah. So so you are cutting through all of those clips and yes. all of the different soundbites. Yes. Okay. Because having not worked on a show like that until recently, that's a big chunk of it is logging all those. Uh, that is a chore. All those bits. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. But uh, I'm a control freak. Is there an organization strategy? <laughs> um, no, it's just pure chaos. <laughs> I think that sounds like mine. Yeah, it's just absolute chaos. What's yours, Perry? Mine is absolute chaos. Yeah. So I, I actually, I use Descript for a lot of it so that I can keyword search through everything and then That's pull smart. clips. And, but, uh, but it is a lot of, holy crap, I've got a deadline that I'm trying to manage towards. Let me find clips that match this and then build voiceover around it. Oh my um, gosh, the clips. I can save this as untitled.wave on my desktop for now. I'll move it later. That's fine. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Why, is, why is there untitled.wave.43? Yeah. Oh, crap. Um, exactly. Yeah, so there's lots of that. So for you then, from the beginning of when you decide to start creating an episode to the completion, how many hours do you think you invest in that? I have no idea. I have <laughs> no idea. Oftentimes we'll be working on two episodes at once, right? So I'll be like right. projecting myself ahead a little bit or Riley and Miranda will be starting to kind of get some idea about whatever's coming next and then I'll just be buried in. I just have no I don't have a process. It's just whatever I feel like doing in that moment. And then somehow it comes together. It feels like a divine hand guiding it because I don't I don't know what is going on most of the time. But uh, somehow I manage. I'm pretty sure we have the same process. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I can relate yeah. to that so much and I don't mm -hmm. want to. Uh, yeah. That is, that is. Let me pull everything together and just kind of be like a kid tearing through Christmas presents, yep. and then somehow organization finds it a little bit, 
And then it's just cutting away until something doesn't sound completely wrong anymore. Definitely. And 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 a way to it's really important to me in the show, and I'm sure it's important to you as well to like tie together all of the threads. Yeah. Um, because there's a lot of threads happening, and that's a that's the poetry thing too. And also just like learning about it, it comes back to being in high school and learning the structure of an essay like that mm. is always coming back in my head it's like okay now in the conclusion you need to pull together your three paragraphs and you need to you know finish your thesis and so right. that i think my english teachers are always in the back of my head helping me <laughs> structure things as well in this episode i will it pretty much yeah is <laughs> you're working through an episode and you're assembling tape and even starting your initial voiceover do you write everything out it once or do you kind of find your way through it record a little bit of voiceover add some clips find your way through a little bit more and then finally do the conclusion based on everything that you've decided to keep each episode's different and i i've recently changed my process of recording so it's like i record all at once whereas i used to edit as i recorded so instead i just have all this raw audio then i cut it up and and then put it together but it usually i'll record over a couple days so as i go along I'll have a finished script, but I'll know that things are going to change as I'm reading it out loud and as I'm just having new ideas, even then, like making different connections. Like, I think there's something when you speak something, it it metabolizes in your brain differently. You know, I'll go through and a lot of things will change and, you know, I'll say, oh, I don't want this paragraph anymore. Or, oh, you know what? I just remembered something that needs to go in. It's got to go in. And then at the end, the conclusion, oftentimes the thing that I'll record last is the final line, the final sentence. I'll, I won't come up with because you, I, I, you got to kill on the last sentence, man. You got to <laughs> kill on it. So uh, that that's the thing I think that that tortures me. It's <laughs> just making sure that, you know, that last image and that's the poetry thing. You know, the last yeah. uh, image that you leave people with is going to be what they take away in the end. So that that takes the longest because it feels the most important. Nice. Well, you can you can definitely feel the poetry influence now that you mention that. I can I can definitely feel that as I'm yeah. thinking through it. It gives me hope that your process is so chaotic and yet your show is so beautifully organized and presented so well that maybe we can pull it off. That's so nice of you. Yeah, you would you would never know that it is virtually the same controlled fearful chaos that I throw myself into. Well, because <laughs> oh, yeah. some of the other podcasters we've talked to have like a regimented, I do this, then I do this, then I put this in an outline, then I revise the outline, then I, you know, and so. Bless their hearts. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> More of our interview with Chelsea Weber-Smith after this. Hey, listeners, if you're like me and enjoy escaping to a real movie theater, then Regal Unlimited just makes sense. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. And your membership lets you get into premium format shows like IMAX and 4DX at a reduced cost. Plus, you'll save 10% on all non-alcoholic concessions. Regal Unlimited, it's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. So, if you're planning on seeing a couple movies this month, join Regal Unlimited. Now is the best time as summer's coming up. Sign up now in the Regal app or on the website at regmovies.com unlimited. 
and be sure to use the code FOLKLORE24 to get 10% off a three-month subscription. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Hey ya, Mason here, and I don't think I've mentioned it on the show before, but I have two cats, two big old boys named Chester and Cinders, and I love them both very much. But I didn't grow up with cats, and I've never suffered from general allergies like pollen, so it took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that I was allergic to them. No joke, when I started working from home, I would say things like, wow, I feel like I'm losing my voice every day, or isn't it weird, I can't breathe through my nose for some reason. Ultimately, it was my partner who said, that really sounds like allergies. And long story short, now I take a Claritin every day. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claret and clear. Use as directed. Welcome back. We said we want to do something creepy pasta and dark themes. So we were hoping to avoid Slenderman. And then the more research we did, every academic was you know, raising Slenderman up as like this example of what digital folklore is capable of. When when somebody says Slenderman, what comes to mind and what makes Slenderman an important part of contemporary folklore? Hmm. I think you can see how an urban legend is like a community project in a way. And, um, you know, the whispered way that we've told stories about other types of boogeymen, it has this quality where you can almost add your own spin. And I'm sure that, you know, we all remember being kids and hearing some kind of urban legend. And, you know, I remember there was a supposed, you know, child kidnapper in our uh, neighborhood when I was growing up, which is his own story. And there was, in fact, not a child kidnapper. But uh, yeah, I just remember exaggerating the story and saying, I saw him and he was doing this. Um, and and I just remember making that choice and saying, you know, I'm going to add to this. It's going to make me cool. I have no idea what the motivation was, but it was a way to add your own spin and be part of the story. And I think that that's what's happening with creepypasta, even though it's it's more overtly untrue. And yet when you're uninformed of that or you're younger, you're in elementary school, you're in middle school um, and you haven't kind of passed that liminal threshold uh, into where you're no longer uh, as as ready to believe in in monsters and other fantastical things. So Slenderman is showing that that's just going to happen online. And there's always going to be personal additions to these legends and that will blow them up bigger and bigger and give them a lot more um, substance to them. And then also teach us a lot more about what we're scared of as a culture, even if it's kind of hard to f- to figure out what's being expressed there. That uh, ties really well into something we spoke with uh, Vivian Asimos about that, who has a, a doctorate in digital narrative. And one of the things that she had mentioned was that uh, monsters typically represent categorical breakdowns. And those categories that are being broken are usually indicative of things that a culture sees as needing protection or there are anxieties around. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I mean, with Sunderman, it's hard to to figure out. And something I love 
to to study and talk about is the uncanny valley mm. the the response that we have as humans to things that look human but are not humanoid things like dolls or clowns or mannequins or things that are they they unnerve us they trigger strange feelings in us and everybody knows what i'm talking about but i'm really interested in, in that phenomenon and there's something about slenderman that does trigger that primordial fear that we have about these these inhuman humanoids but other than that i'm not sure you know i i guess i'm just not sure about what slender man represents i mean you know he he's inviting kids into the woods right i mean that's classic <laughs> stuff right there um but it's not parents telling the story right it's not parents saying oh don't go in the woods or slender man will get you it's it's kids like creating their own their own boogeyman but they kind of love him too there yeah there's like a bring your own fear type yeah, of thing totally, with that yeah, right totally. is uh, his face is blank it's like a, a rorschach test for whatever you already fear now you mentioned the uh, the woods which is one of the things that slenderman is known for not everything because i think that the community around slenderman has broken him out and put him in other spaces as well mm-hmm. but the woods when you talk about legend and folklore, even, you know, in your show, when you go back and talk about the puritanical roots for lots of things, the woods are very significant in that. Why do why do woods keep popping up over and over and over? Well, I think, I mean, I think that there's your basic biological reason that, the you know, the woods are dangerous. You can't see what's around you. We all have animal brains. So, you know, when there are places for predators to pop out and get us we're not going to want to go in there but i also think if we were looking at it on like a sociological level that for us especially in our anglo-saxon tradition in america we like to reject the natural world out of fear and um that's why a lot of racial commentaries by powerful white people will be about people of color having these animalistic traits or the idea of like the jungle creeping into the suburbs if you've ever ha- heard that about mm. sort of yeah just just it's it's a it's a metaphor for like the chaos i think that we want to to repress and repress and repress and repress um which includes our societal others so i think the woods just is like the Jungian shadow in a way where you don't know what's going to happen in there. You shouldn't go in there. Um, You should stay in like the civilized world, which as we know, perhaps isn't as civilized as we pretend it is. Yeah. I feel like there's an interesting point slash pivot, I guess, to be made there of the, the woods in folklore and all these stories and being this rejection of the natural world, like you said, and also uh, embodiment of chaos. It's almost as though the internet itself as a whole is the new woods that we're scared of, or at least for a period of time there was that. But there's irony in that because it's a wholly artificial world that exists purely in electricity. And it reminded me of a quote that Vivian had also said of um, when Momo came out, Momo wasn't so much the monster as Momo was indicative of the internet as a monster. Mm-hmm. And the internet being the woods that Slenderman emerged from. Ooh, I love that. Internet is the new woods. It's, uh, it is. It's chaos. It's a pure and absolute <laughs> chaos um, in here. So uh, I think you're absolutely right. And Slenderman is, 
is that boogeyman in the woods. And, uh, you know, parents have a lot to fear on the Internet, but uh, it may not be Slender Man and it may not be Momo. <laughs> yeah, because all the moral panics that were spawned around these things, and yet they're definitively not real. Yeah, they're just completely not real. Yeah. I feel like you would have a lot of really good insight on the moral panic aspect that spun out around uh, Slender Man and also Momo. Yeah, moral panics, I have learned, are often symbolic representations of fears that we have. And they are also act as a sleight of hand so that we can be distracted by a more interesting problem and not have to address structural issues uh, in society and in family systems and things like that. So something like Momo, you have this creature that is drawing children into this mental health crisis, right? Where it's like, oh, this monster is convincing our children that they need to commit suicide, right? When we have a very real issue with suicide in young people, right? So it's a really, it's a great sensational boogeyman to say, oh, the problem is that there are these really bizarre individuals out there, whether they be supernatural or just some creepy like saw villain that are um, encouraging children to go down this path when it very well could be parents themselves who are not addressing mental health issues or who may even be causing them or at least um, allowing them to to go unchecked and be distracted by these these fun stories. It's no different than the stories that we got in the 90s. It is it is kind of like these the, the these boogeymen that pop up and then we put all of our attention on that rather than addressing the actual root anxiety they point towards. Yeah, that sleight of hand comment is so interesting because it lets you externalize an issue rather than look into a mirror. Yes, that's absolutely right. Yep. And there's also, and you mentioned this in, in the snuff films episode, uh, typically a lack of actual substance in most of the things that cause moral panics. Mm -hmm. Slender Man was a little mm -hmm. different. There was actual harm committed there. But with Momo, at least in all of the digging that we could do, there was no definitive harm actually linked to Momo. The appearing in kids' videos being edited in didn't seem to be happening, except in that one reference clip until after that news was made and then people started doing that. Mm -hmm. is that. Is that a common thread that there's like typically not substance behind most of the things that get turned into moral panics? Or have you encountered anything like that? I don't have the base of knowledge to speak to that. Yeah, I think, you know, I think you can take something kind of the most basic moral panic is stranger danger. Um, I think it's a great way to look at a moral panic because there's always been an issue with child sexual abuse and things that harm children. And yet that harm in the 80s and 90s was presented as a, you know, roving stranger in a van offering candy and, and kidnapping children, which almost never happened. But what there was a lot of are, you know, issues of children being harmed in their own homes and communities, which mm -hmm. is very hard to address. It's very hard to talk about. It's very hard to have any idea how to solve. And so if we have this sensational villain and sensational issue, we can again, yeah, like you said, externalize the problem away from us and then um, deal with this abstract problem that isn't necessarily completely untrue. Children were kidnapped. Adam Walsh, Johnny Gosh, it was, you know, huge news and it was terrifying. It was so scary. And so there's a lot of 
good reason for people to be scared of such a terrifying crime. And yet we'll take those stories, those very, very few stories that nonetheless happen, nonetheless matter. And then we'll use that story, that rare story as proof that this is some kind of widespread issue and then ignore what I consider to be boring issues, boring and difficult, complicated, not simple. Simple is arrest that man in the van. And what's not simple is we have generational trauma in our, you know, so it's just uh, it's a sleight of hand and it's convenient for uh, a lot of different types of people. For sure. Both difficult and does not serve the attention economy to gain that kind of traction no. and, th- and things like that. No. Yeah. Perry, both you and I really liked the woozle effect. Had yeah. not heard of it until you described it. Yeah. Can you can you give us an overview of that? Because I was immediately drawn in. in well, first, I listened to the context uh, episode on pornography and you kind of hinted at what would be coming in the snuff film. And then you said and uh, you basically forecasted Winnie the Pooh would be involved at some point. So I listened to the end for the Winnie the Pooh reference. Yeah, you like that, right? <laughs> and it paid off really, really well. Can you can you walk us through some of that? Yeah, I definitely can. I I really liked that I could force people to listen <laughs> because they had to know what was going to happen. Oh, I was waiting with bated breath. It was expertly done. <laughs> wondering what that red shirt deviant was going to do. I know, he's <laughs> nasty. Um, it was really, really artfully done. <laughs> the the build up to that. And I don't know how I had never heard that phrase before because that again that's like the stuff that I just eat up all the time. So especially in security, you like gave me a missing part of myself. Yeah. <laughs> I feel more complete now after this episode. I know. I mean, I didn't know about it either. And again, yeah, it's like I've been doing this for so long and there's so many effects like that, you know, cuz they're not you anybody can make an effect. Right. Yeah. It's, well, it's, it's like looking at the cognitive bias chart, you know, that has all these spindly things coming out and there's, you know, over 200 of them in there. So it may even be listed on that chart and I've never looked at it. The woozle effect is uh, something that comes from Winnie the Pooh. And that's that's the story in which uh, Pooh and Piglet are walking through a snowy forest And they're looking for this magical creature called a woozle and they see footprints in the snow. So they start following those footprints and soon they start seeing more footprints in the snow. And they're like, oh, there's even more woozles that we're looking for. They just keep going and going and trying to catch up with these creatures. Eventually, they uh, have Christopher Robin come in and uh, (laughs) the omnipresent God that he is lets them know that. They have actually been following their own footprints. So they've been going in circles thinking that they're following something real when it's actually fictional. And they're adding their own evidence to it, quote unquote, as they go. And so that story is used to explain how one piece of evidence, um, something that's you know untrue or misinterpreted or uh, a story that's told incorrectly or misunderstood in some way serves as like a piece of foundational evidence. And then, you know, our cognitive bias, we want to believe that. So we're going to add our own evidence and build off this. And, you know, even in academia and academics going to say something like it's widely understood that X, Y, and Z. And we use snuff films as an example. It's widely understood that there's this underground industry producing murder films, but that's all based on a single 
line written in a book about Charles Manson way back in in the early 70s. So from there, you know, we had different kinds of groups seize on that story, feminists as well as as fundamentalist Christians to tell the story that there was this horrible industry going on because it served uh, different purposes. And so it was easy to want to believe that and then to find ways to to spin it to your own audience and uh, build on it. You know, often without knowing, you know, it's not like a dishonest process. People believe it genuinely often, not always, but a lot of people believe it genuinely. And uh, it just it just takes on a life of its own from there, like an urban legend. Yeah. I mean, well, it turns into footnote pasta, right? Is, uh, <laughs> I, I've, I've seen this this one thing. I'm going to reference that. And then an article references the original thing, and then I reference the article that referenced the original thing, and then somebody else referenced. <laughs> so it becomes this this the infinite mirrors yeah, problem. It's hard. Of uh, you've pointed two things at each other, and you just get this replicative effect over time. So that was when you mentioned that in that episode. It was like such a great encapsulation of that problem. It's so hard because, and I'm sure you guys run into this as well. I don't want to be a part of. The woozle effect. So, you know, it takes a lot of, you know, not taking things at face value. Even really famous, important works are full of errors and full of uh, things that aren't true. And, and it's to no fault of the person writing it because, you know, they I mean, maybe it is, but they, you know, didn't follow up on something because they didn't think they needed to. And so I'm always trying to say, you have to follow up on this, even if you believe it to be common knowledge. And a lot of times I am shocked by uh, what is not supported by any actual evidence that we believe. Even mm. in stuff like uh, in going through the research and notes process for this episode on Slenderman and Momo, I was making sure to dig using the Wayback Machine and finding all the original posts. And because because even in something arguably not as important as like a misinterpreted scientific article or something but even something like slenderman there's inconsistencies in the in the timeline and moving forward or people claimed it this happened this happened this was mentioned here it is very hard to not be a part of that effect uh, especially if you're doing any research of any kind on the internet where it, it's like a woozle trap and have a deadline and have a yeah, deadline. If, you, if you have a deadline and uh, and limited energy it's it's easy to to go well that seems right or like that fits what i want to say oh that's it i got a narrative we all have one i'm not going to act yeah. like i'm some you know perfectly impartial person but i found the three sources that tie my story together well and <laughs> make my point for me yeah are you familiar with Mandor Handhook Cardor? No, no, I'm not familiar with it. So this was, it's a troll pasta that first surfaced on 4chan. And so it's somebody making fun of all the different urban legends and creepypastas. Like then who was phone, right? Remember that one? No, I don't, but I want to. What is that? Okay. You yeah, have look to it look. up. Yeah, I, can't, I don't remember it, but it's, it's, I think it's the same kind of thing. Then who that, was phone? Right. Talking about. No, you're mean. Okay, yeah. cool. I. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, look yeah. Look at it. <laughs> it's very short. It's a... A, a catchphrase associated with a subtype of creepypasta stories that are poorly written or unintentionally funny. So that's another form of troll pasta. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. oh yeah. So you're with your, <laughs> yeah. Then who was phone? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Know. It's exactly, it's exactly like that. <laughs> okay. I want to hear this. We'll have Mason do a dramatic I'll, reading. I'll do my best. It really it's, is. It's like one minute. It's best absorbed through the eyes, but I'll read it verbatim. It is. Yeah. There's, there's tons of horrible grammar and spelling. Well, I want to hear, I want to hear you do it. Man and girl go out to drive under moonlight. They stop at on at a side of road. He turned to his girl and say, Baby, I love you very much. 
What is it, honey? Our car is broken down. I think the engine is broken. I'll walk and get some more fuel. Okay, I'll stay here and look after our stereo. There have been news reports of steries being stolen. Good idea. Keep the doors locked no matter what. I love you, sweaty. So the guy left to get full for the car. After two hours, the girls say, where is my baby? He was supposed to be back by now. Then the girl hear a scratching sound and a voice say, let me in. The girl doesn't do it. And then after a while, she goes to sleep. The next morning, she wakes up and finds her boyfriend still not there. She gets out to check and man door, hand hook, car door. <laughs> in scene. Perfect. Yes. It's perfect. I mean, it's still pretty much the same story. It's, yeah, it's, anyway. it's the hook, but just <laughs> taken to this yeah. ab absurd level. Yeah, with, with all the pasta effects of bad grammar being repeated and everything oh, yeah. else. Oh, yeah. The obvious pivot would be that that's obviously a reference to the hook urban legend, which I'm sure you're familiar with. After the break, the conclusion of our interview with Chelsea Weber-Smith. Welcome back. What kind of other sort of contemporary legends or urban legends, like equally ridiculous or less ridiculous <laughs> as Mandor, Handhook, Cardor? And then like, what, what does it tell us about ourselves? I am a big fan of the babysitter and the man upstairs. That's my favorite urban legend, which is the story of a babysitter who's watching kids and keeps getting phone calls from a creepy person who's laughing and saying he'll he'll be there, you know, in an hour, half hour, 50 minutes. And then, um, you know, it's the have you check the children's story. Um, and she finds out, of course, that the call is coming from inside the house when she uh, uses the operator to try to trace it. So my real truest gateway into urban legends was scary stories to tell in the dark. You know, a lot of 90s kids were reading that and unintentionally <laughs> learning a lot of urban legends because that was a lot of the source material and other kinds of folklore. And yeah, I think the babysitter and the man upstairs, I, I can't even say exactly why I like it so much, but I think I believe that it started to come about during time when women were starting to go to work a lot more and babysitters were kind of a new thing. And so there was this anxiety mm. of leaving your children behind and kind of almost like the naivety of a babysitter or naivete of a babysitter or just the how scary it is to leave your children in the hands of a babysitter. And, and then if you take it farther, the irresponsibility of a woman who uh, is not a present mother 24 seven. Mm. So that isn't exactly why I like the story. I just think there's something to the call coming from inside the house. I think you can apply that line to so many different parts of what it means to to be a person and how we interpret different yeah. uh, urban legends or anything. Um, we're always going to interpret them through our own lens. And we're, you know, often our own boogeyman in a, in a sense of, you know, creating the things we fear and focusing on them and blowing them up and uh, spreading them around. <laughs> so there is a really good point there that 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 line, the call is coming from inside the house, which has been turned into a meme to express that same idea. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. really cool. Yeah, I love love that. Love that one. And I also love uh, the headlights one. What would you call it? Um, the man in the back seat. Oh, yeah. High beams. Yeah. Where um, the car is being followed by a truck that keeps turning the high beams on and the woman who's driving is freaked out and it's following her, keeps turning the lights on. She doesn't know what's going on. She gets to her house, you know, runs out of the car, 
saying, why are you following me? I'm calling the police. He says, no, there's a man in your backseat. Every time he rose up with the axe, I turned my lights on so that he thought he'd be seen. You know, there's variations on that. Obviously, there's the one with the gas station attendant that we see in the movie Urban Legend that I love so much from the 90s. But yeah, I say those are those are my two favorites. And then the people lick two was the one as a kid that really got me with the dog. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. that one I don't know at all. You don't know no, that No, I don't think you so. You do. I feel like you do. It's like somebody's nervous. They're in bed. They're scared. They're hearing a noise. It's a dripping. Drip, drip, drip. And then in order to get comfort, the girl, or boy, puts their hand down and lets their dog lick their hand. And this happens throughout the night. Keeps hearing the dripping. Keeps hearing the dripping. Finally gets up to investigate what it is. And written in blood on the wall beside the murdered dog it says people lick too so the person who was licking the hand was oh, actually oh i hate the that i hate everything about that <laughs> i hate that so much <laughs> yeah it's not oh, not a nice story oh god and it got me as a kid man Whew, yeah it got everybody i feel like yeah that was a big one Ugh. The thing that comes as I've been restudying all of these urban legends is that they can and they are told in such a short, compressed time frame. You can tell an urban legend in you know a minute, minute and a half. But I remember when we were kids, it felt like those were 20 minute stories. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, they they felt long because it was the first time we heard them. There's a social context that's involved. There's a lot of kind of psychological implication when we're in those environments as well. And they just feel like experiences that we're, we're going through. But now on the other side, looking at the ones that, that we grew up with, you can really start to understand the psychology of them as well, especially like, you know, what we were talking about before, the, the, the callers coming from inside the house. It is, you know, the thing that you were epitomizing, you know, putting this babysitter in control of your children, that is the threat. Yeah. It is that mm-hmm. you are absent from the house. You're turning over your your responsibility to a third party and that third party is negligent. It's kind of like the uh the babysitter that puts the uh, the baby in the the oven and the turkey and <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Same time frame that those were really popular, I think. And that was probably a societal way of of um big gender discrimination. Oh, yeah. of, you know, that the woman needs to be in the house, you know, the mother needs to be in the house so that the children can be adequately cared for. So it's a, a suppression tactic in a lot of ways. Yeah. When you're really thinking about folklore in general or online folklore, or you're thinking about the things that you like to cover for American hysteria, what are the things that you like to research the most and help people understand? I like to really try to show the through line throughout history and how most of the stories we tell have just have been told before in different forms, almost as if, you know, they're some kind of archetypal template that we just fill in again and again. And I think it can be really valuable to see the history of a story, if for no other reason than to kind of render it ridiculous, because there are stories that we tell ourselves that are really simple, like this is the good person of the story. This is the bad person. This is our hero. This is our villain. You know, this is who was on the right side of history. This is who was on the wrong side. And History never works like that, and our heroes are never completely heroic, and our events are never simple, and they're never pure, right? They're never, they're always tainted with individual people who have their own agendas. And I think 
telling the stories of people is really a lot of fun because that's more interesting than telling a flat history of something if you're going to say, okay, we're going to follow this person over 30 years and their work that they did and all of the ridiculous things that they were also doing and saying and thinking and then how that can show us, okay, what did American society obsess over in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and what can that teach us in a broader sense of like our evolving fears and and fascinations. Um, and I think I love being able to say we've been telling this story this way this entire time. But, you know, every generation just puts a new villain in there or puts a new um, cultural boogeyman, which is, of course, often people who are lower on the hierarchy of American society. Mm hmm. And I think that's really important, too, is understanding scapegoating and the ways that we blame people for problems that are maybe not the actual people with power that are controlling more of, of the propaganda or whatever we are being told through different channels. <laughs> I always verge into conspiracy theory there. Like, <laughs> again, there are, there are powers that be. We'll never say there aren't. But yeah, I do think that there's power in rendering our simple narratives, just kind of cracking them and saying, we can't just rely on this story. We can't just fall back on our history of being heroes or villains because it's it's never simple. It's always completely chaotic. In incredibly well put. Thanks. Yeah. So <laughs> I listened to your Urban Legend one a couple times, and you mentioned the, the book, The Choking Doberman, which was one of his that I didn't have. I've got The Vanishing Hitchhiker and uh, a couple of others of his compilations. But I went out and got it, and it just arrived today. And I yeah. it. You got the same copy as me. I love it. It's great. You're going to love it. Oh, the hardback. Yeah. And it smells old because I think it was actually printed in 1983 and sitting on a shelf until then. <laughs> I tried to get Jan to talk to me, oh. but his wife, I like, I couldn't find, couldn't find it. And this was in the very beginning. And I finally found his wife on Facebook and said, like, please, like, but she just said he doesn't do interviews anymore. So oh, too bad. Gotta respect it. I yeah. know. I know. But he is a true rock star, an academic rock star. <laughs> You reminded me of that when you were talking about how these come up in order to kind of deal with different social pressures, you mm -hmm. know, and in the, you know, the Doberman story, the thing that doesn't get brought up too many times nowadays is that in the original one, the fingers were of a, of a, of a black man yeah. because that was the threat, right, of mm -hmm. uh, dealing with racial problems. And so I, I think that idea of the urban legend being used to not only to express fear, but also to bring in some bit of control in some ways is really poignant. Because you have a, a unique perspective on this, being such an avid researcher and knowing so much about history and also being very online. It seems that no matter what, the, the stories we tell stay the same in a lot of ways. They just point to different anxieties. Can you think of any differences between sort of the online folklore generation, the online stories, and I guess what you'd call traditional folklore, traditional stories that we would tell sitting around a campfire? I think that probably the biggest difference is how quickly it spreads and how many people it spreads to. So back when we had, you know, the original way to tell urban legends was you heard it from a friend of a friend. Um, my theory is the ways that urban legends spread is you call your cousin over in, Cal you know, you're in Missouri, you call your cousin in California, tell him the story, and then it's in California. Because, you know, it's like, oh, why do they pop up everywhere at once? Is it, you know, 
some psychological thing manifesting all. It's like, yeah, and it's also probably, you know, Timmy calling his cousin and uh, telling him this crazy story that apparently happened in that town. And then uh, he says, oh, you know what happened in our town? <laughs> this And then it you know, spins out. But, you know, and then in the 90s, you had fax lore, which I love so much, which is um, all the chain letters that talked about, uh, you know, if you flash your headlights at somebody whose headlights are off, they're going to run you off the road as a part of a gang initiation. That was a big one that parents were terrified of during like gang panic stuff spreading that around but you know it's, it's limited right you're spreading it around uh as a parent and then children are picking up that information and spreading it around but now it's like it can go I'm in momo i'm sure you talk about this but kim kardashian was yeah. a huge i mean honestly i don't know what if it would have happened without kim kardashian because she in an instant showed millions of people this you know creepy chicken suicide enchantress <laughs> so it's like we <laughs> I've never heard momo described that way. that's a poetry degree right there great. baby i don't know there's just you have a lot more ability to to quickly have a false story spread which of course then we can expand out to talk about misinformation and disinformation and all of of that kind of stuff which is kind of just like what like adult urban legends in a way. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah Thanks so much for listening, and thank you to Chelsea Weber-Smith for spending time with us. Check out our show notes for more information about Chelsea, the American Hysteria podcast, and more. If you're not already subscribed to American Hysteria and today's interview piqued your interest, do yourself a favor and go subscribe to or follow American Hysteria right now. If you have any questions, feedback, or ideas for a future episode, you can reach us at hello at eighthlayermedia.com. Digital Folklore is created and produced by Eighth Layer Media and is distributed by Realm. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.